Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, a case about whether schools can punish student speech that happens off campus, um, what some have dubbed the cursing cheerleader case. The justices there are considering the reach of the court's landmark ruling in Tinker versus Des Moines Independent School District. But first, Jordan, we got a grant and a gun case that could itself be um, a landmark decision. You want to tell us about that one? New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against Corlett. That's right. This is going to be a big one next term, Kimberly. The court is going to look at the right to carry a gun outside of the home. Remember in the big 2008 case, Heller, the court said the Second Amendment provides a right to personal self-defense in the home. And since then, gun rights advocates have been pressing to expand on that ruling with no luck until now. And the issue in this case that's going to be argued next term is whether New York's denial of concealed carry licenses for self-defense violates the Second Amendment. So in answering that question, the court's going to be dealing with the right outside of the home. And I have a feeling we're going to be talking about that one again before it's argued next term. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what comes up. You know, who knows? So we got an opinion this week, Kimberly. Another 6-3, but it's not your grandma's 6-3. What happened there? Hold on to your grandmas with this one. Um, This was an immigration case, another one. um, We've talked before about the court having a pretty immigration-heavy docket. Uh, This was what Gorsuch called during oral arguments Pareto Groundhog Day. Uh, And that's because it relies on a 2018 ruling, Pareto, about notice of appeals, which can have consequences for non-citizens seeking relief from deportation. So this deals with longtime immigrants who face removal, but who've been in the country for so long that they have established ties to the United States. Um, Here, for example, the non-citizen has children who are U.S. citizens. Uh, The outcome that the court came to was really um, strictly construing the statute uh, against the government, um, and it all really boiled down to the word a, uh, although they did also look at the words an and the, so, you know, they had like six letters to look at. It was was a big deal. Um, But Gorsuch wrote a pretty Gorsuch-y opinion. That's the technical technical term for it. Um, He talked about the government's, quote, affinity for forms and the penalties that uh, can be faced if, you know, citizens make mistakes on those forms. And so he said, quote, if men must turn square corners when they deal with the government, it cannot be too much to expect the government to turn square corners when it deals with them. Uh, So as you kind of hinted at, uh, the lineup was did not fall along ideological lines, at least not among the conservatives. So here we had Gorsuch, Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, Thomas, and Barrett uh, in the majority, uh, not one we've seen before, versus Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Alito. Um, And so, you know, we've seen kind of similar lineups to this where, you know, that liberal block really sticks together and is able to nab enough votes to pull off wins here. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this lineup is that the Supreme Court lately has really gone most of the, you know, wherever Kavanaugh and Roberts go is tends to be where the court goes. Um, but here they're both in dissent. So um, everybody's got real heated about notice of appeals, a notice of appeal. So Kimberly, you did an interview this week about the school speech case. Before we get into that, do you want to set the case up a bit? 
Sure. And before we get started, just wanted to note that this case deals with profanity, and we'll be using some language that may not be suitable for all listeners. So Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, uh, this involves a student who was upset that she did not make the varsity cheerleading squad. And so she posted a profane um, message on Snapchat. um, And, you know, fuck cheerleading, fuck the school, fuck everything, which I certainly, you know, can relate to. Uh, But you didn't make the team this year. The justices here are going to decide kind of the reach of the court's 50-year-old decision in Tinker. And this is a case that lawyers learn about, you know, in con law where, you know, two students wore a black armband in protest of the Vietnam War. And the Supreme Court said that schools can't punish speech unless it's, you know, has a likelihood to create a disturbance. And so here the question for the court um, is whether or not that doctrine applies off campus, and in particular um, in relation to social media, which uh, many of the justices noted, really it doesn't matter where you send it or where you see it, um, you know, in the same ways that those lines were very clearly drawn in Tinker. So let's get to the interview. So our guests today are Charlie Mursky. He's the Judicial Advocacy Associate for March for Our Lives, and Maya Green, the Organizing Director at Student Voice. Thank you both for being on with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I was wondering first if we could talk a little bit about the organizations that you guys work with and how that relates to this particular case. Um, Yeah, so I work with March for Our Lives. I mean, we were founded uh, in 2018 following the shooting at Stone and Douglas. Um, And since then, we've been organizing on campuses across the country. Um, And the team that I'm a part of, uh, we focus on kind of the court-facing stuff that relates partially to the Second Amendment, but even more broadly uh, to students in general. And we want to advocate for student rights across the board. Um, Basically, a big important part of March for Our Lives is our use of social media and Uh, We think this case directly relates to that because, uh, for instance, even the walkouts we did in 2018 relied on our ability to walk out of schools and advocate for issues that were important for us in our communities um, off of school campus. Um, And a case like this can potentially threaten that because if students are leaving campus advocating for issues that are important to them and then coming back and are potentially punished um, by their schools... um, not only would that you know, unfairly punish kids for uh, you know, the activity they're doing off campus, but it might even chill um, you know, their rights to even do so. They might feel threatened um, that the school might punish them. Um, so we think that this directly affects uh, the advocacy work that uh, March for Our Lives does. Great. And how about you, Maya? Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what you guys do and you know, how this case relates to your organization as well? Yeah. Um, So I work for Student Voice, and we have very similar concerns to March for Our Lives. Um, We were founded in 2012, actually on Twitter. Um, We the the first um, iteration of Student Voice was quite literally um, students just inserting themselves into adults' Twitter chats about education using the hashtag StuVoice. And so obviously very concerned around the possible limitations of social media speech that that could result from this case. Um, Now, you know, 
10 years out, nearly 10 years out, um, we've evolved to support um, a team of, of students across the country working on storytelling and organizing around issues in their school and community. Um, this looks like a lot of social media organizing, like a lot of online journalism, and, and all of those things are kind of put in the question. The right of students to put the, to do these things or, and to express themselves in this way is, is put into question by this case, especially um, if, if this case, if the results of this case kind of give schools um, broad reach over what they can punish students for saying online, like, especially when you're thinking about education advocacy, you can definitely, I think, envision a world where students criticizing their schools online, um, much in the way Brandy Levi, Levi did, um, is put into question by this case. And so we really want to make sure that regardless of, of the results, whether it's, um, you know, they rule in favor, or whether they, um, you know, have a very narrow ruling that at the end of this case, that students write to criticize their school and, and speak their truth around what they see in their classrooms and in their communities is protected at the end of the day. Yeah, well, you guys both hit on a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. Um, so one of the issues for the justices that they dealt with was how to update, you know, this 50-year-old case, um, Tinker, to modern technology, social media. So, for instance, we saw Justice Thomas wonder whether it makes sense to limit a school's ability to punish speech on campus when, you know, social media can be seen anywhere um, and sent anywhere. Aren't we at a point where... If it's on social media, where you uh, post it on social media doesn't really matter. You could do it in class, algebra class, or you could do it in sleepover and say the exact same thing about Mrs. Johnson. Uh, this, so how would that make any difference uh, where you post it? Well, that's precisely correct. When it comes to the Internet, things like time and geography are meaningless, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say that the same speech is somehow within the school's regulation if it's one foot on campus or one foot off campus or at the Starbucks. But your brief really highlights the importance of social media for students, not just to be social, right, but to be political. And I think, uh, Maya, one thing you talked about was um, the hashtag student voice. Your amicus brief points out that uh, people under 30 are more likely to include hashtags that, um, you know, relate to political uh, organizations and groups and topics um, when they're speaking on social media. So I guess, could you guys talk a little bit more about how, you know, whether it makes sense for schools to be able to, or, I'm sorry, let me let me rephrase that, about whether it makes sense to kind of draw this line on campus, off campus when, you know, social media is so ubiquitous? Well, yeah, I, I definitely think I understand how, how it's a gray area. And so it, it's definitely, I think, you know, the, there's a, a credible argument to be made for, for both sides. I, I think that, um, you know, social media is such a part of students' lives now. Like you said, um, it, it's not just social, it, it's it's political, and it, it blurs the lines between the two. Um, after every kind of political occurrence, like 
sociopolitical occurrence, like social media is kind of the first thing I turned to as a student. It's the first thing a lot of students turn to. And so I, I think to, to limit that to, to because it could affect school, like that's on that's on campus speech. Like I, I think that is very limiting to really like the pervasiveness of, of social media in students' lives. Um, it, it, I think really social media is a reflection of the world around us. And, and a lot of times it's the way we interact with the world around us, especially in this pandemic time. And so to limit it to say, um, oh, just because, you know, a student might mention school or mention, you know, an activity they do or, you know, put their lives on social media, that somehow falls under the purview of, of school, I think could have a lot of dangerous implications. Yeah, so, you know, another interesting thing um, about the arguments was there was some discussion about the school overreacting, um, which we saw kind of most forcefully from uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who apparently doesn't think that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time. Um, But one thing that I thought was interesting was this kind of implicit understanding that what the student communicated here didn't really have a lot of value. Um, and I wonder if you guys see it that way. Yeah, I do. And I, and I think that it's important to, to look at what actually happened here. Um, why did the school react this way? Um, was, was it really a disruption or was it just kind of they were offended by the content of, of, of what she said. I mean, I think if uh, we just said, if, if she had said, oh, I'm really frustrated that I didn't make uh, the, the cheer team and um, the school is, you know, being really annoying here, um, I very much doubt that she would have been suspended. And that carries basically the same meaning. I mean, that, that, why would that cause any more or less disruption um, than saying F school, F cheer, F everything. Um, but she was suspended for that, which means that the school here is limiting what a student is saying off campus because of basically what they said, um, you know, which is, I think, very dangerous because that means that schools can arbitrarily, um, you know, you know, basically discriminate against students based on what they believe off campus, uh, which is obviously very dangerous when we're talking about political speech. Um, and of course, students are already limited in what they can do on campus. No students go to campus and think they can raise their hand in class and say, F school. Like, no, no, one, no one expects that. Uh, so, uh, you know, a bad ruling in this case could really, uh, you know, just get rid of really the only path students have uh, right now to political speech. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, that, you know, you want to give students the, the pa- or you want to give schools the power to advocate for their students, to protect their students, absolutely. But you don't want to give them, you don't want to paint that with such a broad brush that any exp- mere expression of emotion is something that schools have the, have the right to punish. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that the lawyers um, for the school, you know, she started her introduction talking about, you know, the kind of the line that she wants to draw, but also making it clear that, you know, schools shouldn't have what she called a heckler's veto. The speech itself must be culpable. It must inherently compromise school functions, like organizing walkouts. Or the speech must objectively interfere with the rights of others, like severe bullying. But if listeners riot because they find speech offensive... Schools should punish the rioters, not the speaker. 
In other words, the hecklers don't get the veto. But, you know, listening to the justices, it's clear that, that the use of the word fuck is actually objectionable to them and makes something less valuable, right? So they tried to avoid saying it, even if it just didn't quote. They use terms like blankety blank instead of using it. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think I agree with you that that in itself seemed like it was a form of a heckler's veto. Um, but, you know, another thing that they were really worried about um, was bullying and harassment and kind of tying the hands of schools. Um, and I think especially, you know, when we think about the context that we're in, like not just about, you know, a cultural reckoning with race, but what we see happening with transgender students and, of course, school shootings. Um, I wonder, do you think that schools and school administrators have a role to play in kind of limiting cyberbullying and harassment? And is it something that you look to your schools for help with? And is it something that students should look to their schools for help with? I think that it's crucial that schools play a role in restricting bullying and harassment. I mean, how else can you, I mean, I don't know what other mechanism there could possibly be to dealing with that, but the lower courts have included a carve out for bullying and harassment. So um, I don't see, I, I just don't believe that that's really relevant um, in this case. I think that that's not really something we should be concerned about. And yes, schools can, I mean, or according to the lower courts, uh, you know, restrict bullying and harassment activity. And, but of course, is this bullying and harassment activity? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. So um, I mentioned before that you guys filed an amicus brief and, um, you know, it highlights some of the concerns that um, kind of are overlooked when you just look at the pure legal, um, you know, aspects of these cases. Like, you know, I think the ACLU has like a seven part test and, you know, um, but, you know, I guess what is it that you guys really wanted the justices to know um, in this brief? I think obviously, you know, it's clear that the justices think maybe broad opinions that the the speech that's at issue in this case was was not of a value, was not like tremendously profound or important. And I I think we wanted to make the point in our brief that just just that this is much broader than you know the the speech like in the case that um you know if you look uh you know, at every historical moment of, of great change in, in this country and worldwide, like uh, students having the right to to assemble and, and to express themselves and, and to um, really like draw a clear line about the way um, they're willing to be treated and the world they want to live in and their observations around their just their everyday environment. Like all of that is incredibly crucial to um, the health of our democracy to to students' emotional well-being, and so I think we really wanted to just illustrate the kind of student speech that was at risk, um, kind of beyond the speech in this case, if um, the court rules the wrong way. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, anything else uh, to add to that, Charlie? Sure. I mean, I think Maya did a great job at touching upon that, um, but I think another thing we really wanted to highlight is that students, you know, are key like students understand the way public schools work almost more than anyone. I mean, they experience it and students need to be able to advocate for themselves. Um, and sometimes students do not feel safe to do that on campus. So uh, they need avenues to do that, both for political reasons, but also to help schools. I mean, schools need to you know, hear certain criticisms. In this case, maybe um, BL may not have uh, provided like a, a criticism that may help the school improve. I don't know. Maybe they should, uh, I don't know, 
expand their criteria for uh, choosing cheerleaders. <laughs> but, uh, but in other cases, I think it's much more um, important and students can play a crucial role in informing schools about areas they need to improve. Uh, but overall, yes, like uh, what we want to show is that there is much more at stake here uh, than the facts of the case, you know, directly indicate. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that this is kind of, you know, I think it takes greater importance in the lives of students, not just because, you know, it's everything you've talked about, how you deal with the world, but also it's one of the only ways that you can really affect change, right? You don't get to vote as a high school student. You don't get to um, run for, you know, school board seats and stuff like that. So, um, well, it is really great to see what you guys are doing. I really enjoyed your amicus brief. And, you know, we have listeners from, you know, that span the ideological spectrum that will probably agree or disagree with you guys. But I think everyone can really appreciate your involvement and activism, um, not just as young people, but as people who are trying to get shit done. Um, So I look really, I look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before we go, Kimberly, the scheduling of the court's term is a little weird. And so because of that, we're going to have to sneak in a really quick sneak peek of a bonus case the court is going to hear argued next week on May 4th. In Terry v. United States, the court is diving into the war on drugs for its last argument of the term. The issue is whether lower-level crack cocaine offenders can get retroactive sentencing relief. The First Step Act, signed into law by former President Trump, made part of an Obama-era sentencing law retroactive. The question in the case, though, is whether certain lower-level offenders like Mr. Terry are covered by that retroactivity. During the Trump administration, the Justice Department said no. After the election, the department changed its mind and said yes. So the court appointed an amicus to argue for the government's abandoned position, which pushed the case back into this special May session. And I'm looking forward to digging deeper into that case after the argument next week. Yeah, man, they're creating a trend here with these May argument sessions. Last year, this year, we're going to have to change our schedules around. Yeah, it was pretty rude that they kind of messed up our usual sneak peek into deep dive setup, but whatever, as the kids say. (laughs) Hashtag whatever. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for our deep dive episode. Uh, You can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hi, this is Adam Ellington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So, if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.